thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Now this week we have quit the studio and we've come to my kitchen to discuss the science behind how to have the perfect dinner party, which is what we've got going on behind us. Joining us later will be a master chef finalist, a master distiller and also a master of very fine chocolate. Plus ahead of that we've got news that itchy mosquito bites can boost your chances of catching viruses. A new record-breaking supercomputer powers up in China and I take a look at wetsuits that make surfers invisible to sharks. I'm Georgia Mills. And I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Up first, the itchiness of a mosquito bite isn't just an aggravation. This week, scientists have discovered that the inflammation that makes you want to scratch dramatically boosts the infection rate for viruses like Zika, dengue and yellow fever that these insects can carry. Clive McKimmy is at the University of Leeds. When mosquitoes bite you, what they're doing is they're trying to take a blood meal from your skin. But in the process, they're spitting out saliva into your skin. And this is rather disgusting to think about. But this saliva actually contains a lot of disease-causing viruses. And some of these are quite well known, such as the Zika virus, dengue virus and chikungunya. And together, that infects maybe several hundred million people each year. What we do know is that the mosquito bite somehow seems to be helping the virus infection and giving it a boost. So over and above the physical fact that you've got this flying hypodermic needle that comes along and injects you with virus particles, there is an effect in addition to just putting the virus into you whereby the mosquito increases your likelihood of catching whatever it happens to be carrying itself. That's it. We actually know very little really about what happens during these early stages of infection. And what we've done in our recent paper is to show how what we call the mechanistic basis by which the mosquito bite seems to really help the virus infection along. And how does it? What does it do? There's two things going on here. Firstly, you have a bite, and I think anyone who's been bitten by a mosquito will know what that's like. You get a horrible red swelling. There's some what we call inflammation. What your body is doing, actually, is perfectly normal. Whenever you get injured or cut, what happens is your immune cells, and these are the cells that help defend your body against infection. They rush to the site of the damage, which is the mosquito bites in this case, and they're trying to stop any infection that's there. But actually what happens is quite strange. These immune cells, which we call leukocytes, actually seem to get infected by the virus if it's present. And the virus takes over these cells and uses them to replicate so there's more and more copies of the virus in your skin. So if you can stop those cells coming into the bite site, then you can also stop the virus from getting that extra boost. Does this mean that we might have a new way of 
arresting the spread of some of these viral agents so that you might, for instance, have something you could rub on which would cut down the risk of a virus infecting you via that route? Well, we've certainly shown in the, the laboratory setting where everything's very well controlled that if you can stop that bite inflammation, then you can stop the virus from causing disease. Now, the next step, obviously, is to work out how best we can do that before we could even begin to imagine doing any studies in humans because I think we have to be very careful about any form of immune suppression because that can actually be quite dangerous, even if it is a, a topical cream. We're very keen now, that's the next step, to say, can we use this knowledge to stop the virus from spreading by targeting the bite inflammation? And that's particularly exciting because it's common to a lot of these infections, whether it's Zika or Dengue, they're all transmitted by this same mosquito into the bite site. That was going to be my next question, which is, is this generalizable? Viruses that spread by mosquitoes, and there are many different types of them, do they sure. all exploit this mechanism? Well, we've looked at two very genetically distinct viruses. So these are viruses which have nothing in common with each other. Uh, but what they do have in common is that they're spread by the same mosquito. And we showed that in, in this paper, that this mechanism, this way by which the bite boosts the infection, does seem to be the same. And there's actually a paper out uh, just this week from another group in America, which is working on dengue. And they find something similar, where mosquito saliva is boosting the dengue infection. Is there any evidence that, in turn, the virus is manipulating the mosquito, for instance, to make its saliva more inflammatory, so that the mosquito makes your bites itch more, so more immune cells are effectively coming, and therefore you increase even further the likelihood you'll, you'll pick up that infection? Well, that sounds like an excellent question. Um, I don't think there's any data out on that just yet. There is some data which shows that viruses do change uh, what genes and proteins are made by the mosquito. But we've yet to look whether that's actually directly related to how itchy or how inflamed a bite can get. But it, it's certainly a very good question. Clive McKimmy, and that discovery was published in the journal Immunity. And on the subject of mosquitoes spreading infections like Zika virus, fears of the dangers of Zika in pregnancy are fueling a very dramatic rise in illegal abortions in Latin American countries. Because the practice is against the law in these places, women are feeling compelled to explore unsafe back street options that can place their health in serious jeopardy. And ironically, this is happening in response to public health measures designed to educate people about the Zika threat. Catherine Aiken is one of the authors of the study and a women's health doctor at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. There's been a huge surge in demand for abortion across Latin America in countries where government and health organisations have issued warnings about Zika virus. And what we see is that it's been panicking women. They've been feeling that they have to take matters into their own hands to procure abortion in settings where it isn't legal to access it. How big is that surge in demand? In the highest countries that we've seen, it's up to 150% increase. And you know this how? We know this because we partnered with a non-profit, non-governmental organisation called Women on Web. They're an organisation that provide telemedicine abortion all over the world, but particularly in settings where legal abortion is restricted or not available. They do online consultations with women and they either provide abortion drugs directly 
or they give women advice on where they can be reliably obtained within their own settings. And we were very fortunate to be able to obtain their data to model how demand for abortion in various regions across Latin America has been over the last five years, and then to study it since Zika virus has become an issue in these places to determine the effect not only of Zika, but also of these public health warnings. And of course, if one worries people into putting themselves in the position of seeking an illegal abortion, they're potentially putting themselves in the hands of unscrupulous operators and much worse health outcomes than anything Zika might throw at them. Quite right. So Women on Web's method of telemedicine abortion has been shown to be very safe, but it's only available to women who have access to the internet and it's only available to women who know about it. There are many, many other women who may well be driven to other much less safe methods of legal abortion and we're very worried about their health. Rather than pursuing abortion, are we not also really in need of a decent test that will tell a woman whether or not she's had Zika and, more importantly, if she has, whether or not her baby's at risk? Absolutely. That would be the very, very high priority. But we're in a situation at the minute where we don't have that, where we're very unlikely to have that because the babies that we're seeing now, their problems may not manifest for many years and we may not be able to develop something like that within the timescale that these women need it. A very neglected part of this whole story and the whole epidemic is what's actually happening to the women who are right now facing the day-to-day reality of pregnancies that they can't prevent because contraception access is also limited um, and that they can't do anything about. And that's a very frightening place for them to be. And one of the main things we wanted to do from our work was to give them a voice in the world's media. So put their thoughts into a few words that you would have said to the politicians in these countries. What's your message to them? My message would be that a public health warning on which people have no means to act and no means to help themselves is a hollow and empty message that actually harms your population's health rather than improves it. Catherine Aiken, and that study came out this week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, China made history this week when their supercomputer, Sunway Taihu Light, was announced as the fastest in the world. And China can now claim more spots in the world's top 500 fastest supercomputers than the USA. Naked scientist expert Peter Cowley has joined us for our dinner party and he's here to talk us through this new super development. Hi, Peter. Hello, good evening. So to start with, what makes a computer super? Yes, super is probably not the right term. I can imagine back in 76 when it was first used, then it was super made sense, but it should be sort of hyper ultra. The speed increase has been dramatic since then, like all computing power. So, for instance, the 1976 Cray, which probably cost you know, many millions of pounds, is actually, this is the first supercomputer, is actually 15 times slower than my watch on my wrist and 400 times slower than my phone. And, and in the meantime, in the sort of 40 years that's happened since then, up to the latest Chinese one we're going to talk about in a minute, they've been through all kinds of iterations, including one USAF, United States Air Force computer, that used 1,760 PlayStation 3 consoles connected together. So a supercomputer is something that's basically processing very, very very rapidly. So how did this new computer, Sunway Taihu Light, top this list? 
Well, Chinese actually were number two as well. So they're obviously number one a few years ago. So about three years ago, they must have started said, we're going to design a much faster computer. And unlike almost all the other ones in top 500, which is a list that's published, which all mostly use Intel processors, which are used in many of our PCs, this, they designed their own silicon on that. So they've got something that's actually got 10 million separate processors in it. It's got 1.3 million gigabytes of memory. Unbelievable. It, it, it processes almost 100, uh, get this right, it's uh, 10 to the 17, which is 100 million billion op- floating point operations a second. Absolutely massively fast. And floating point operations, what are these? Floating point operations, if you multiply two long numbers together, you get that's floating point as opposed to fixed point. And they're actually interestingly called flops. They talk <laughs> about petaflops and gigaflops and teraflops. So this computer is a 93 petaflop speed. It's a very floppy computer. So what does it actually do? It's um, used for processing, parallel processing, very important, it's parallel processing, vast amounts of data. So weather prediction, uh, flow around aircraft uh, for design purposes, possibly for military applications, I suspect, drug research, uh, computer-aided engineering, oil prospecting, etc. So it's all to do with processing its simultaneously vast amounts of data. Well, these sound pretty useful. So what makes them hard to make? Um, obviously cost. I mean, this one in China apparently costs $270 million. They take a lot of power, 15 megawatts this thing takes, and probably another 25 megawatts to cool it down, and uh, software. So you need some specialized software which will load huge amounts of data and run it in parallel and then pull, pull the data back again for a result. How big are these? Uh, they are huge. I mean, the, this thing, I say, is, is probably, probably takes up 250 square metres of space, of floor space. Wow, incredible. And this top 500 list, does the UK have any supercomputers on it? Yes, it has slightly less than it did in 1996, but it does actually have 11. The two that are round about the 15-16 marker, Craze, which is an American manufacturer that's been around for many years, used by the Met Office for weather prediction. But the Met Office is actually buying a new one at the moment, which will cost £100 million, and to part answer your question earlier on, actually weighs 140 tonnes, which has got a half a million cores, which is still 20 times less than the Chinese one, but it's only five times slower, so 16 petaflops per second. Well, thanks very much, Peter. That was Peter Cowley. We're taught at school about blue and brown eyes. And I clearly remember asking the teacher, what about green eyes? And was told not to worry as it wouldn't be on the exam. <laughs> In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're finding out whether the public is really ready to look inside its genes and how superheroes might help. Plus, a lab for everyone and a gene of the month that's crunchy on the outside. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Georgia Mills. We're actually in my kitchen this week because we are using science to inform how to have the perfect dinner party. We'll be joined later by MasterChef finalist Alex Rushmer, and he'll cook up a few tasty morsels for us to try. We'll also hear about the wetsuit that can make surfers invisible or repellent to sharks. But first, it's time for our myth conception. And this week, Kat's been getting her teeth into a sticky subject that I asked her to look into after my sister stole all of my chewing gum. Are you a fan of chewing gum? I love the stuff and get through several boxes of peppermint gum every week. But I'm always careful to dispose of it in the bin and never swallow it because I've heard the stories that it can stay in your gut for up to seven years. It certainly persists on pavements, desks and pretty much everywhere else people without good gum etiquette care to stick it. 
Flagrantly disregarding this advice, naked scientist Georgia's sister apparently swallowed a metre-long stick of chewing gum when she was six. So, was it still working its way through her system when she hit her teenage years? Well, luckily for Georgia's sister, and presumably her panicked parents, this is a myth. So what's the real story? As the name suggests, chewing gum is designed to resist being broken down by the normal processes by which we digest our food. The first one of these being chewing. Because it's made of a base containing stretchy polymers, resins and other non-digestible components, chewing gum doesn't break down, no matter how hard we mash it in our mouths. So it's pretty sturdy stuff. It's also resistant to the strongly acidic conditions in the stomach, passing through into the intestines in the same state it came in. But once it gets there, it continues its journey onto the outside world in the same way as the rest of our food, although possibly a bit slower than might be expected. In fact, gastroenterologists say that although they can sometimes see evidence of gum in people's guts when they're having a look in there, there's nothing that looks like it's more than a week old. This isn't unexpected. It's exactly the same for other non-food objects that get accidentally swallowed, including small coins or plastic toys, and even false teeth that mistakenly go down a grown-up's guts. We do swallow undigestible objects from time to time, especially kids, and unless they're particularly big or magnetic or batteries, nature usually takes its course and they'll eventually come out the other end. There are a couple of reasons that the myth around chewing gum's longevity in the gut has sprung up. For a start... It's clearly not food. It doesn't break down in our mouths like normal chow, so we think we shouldn't swallow it. Then there are some published case studies, like the children who swallowed chewing gum every day for several years and ended up with having large toffee-like trails of the stuff surgically removed from their intestines. Even more concerningly, in some cases the gum had collected other solid swallowed objects, such as coins or sunflower seeds, adding to the problem. So it's still much better to spit rather than swallow your gum, especially if you're a daily chewer. However, there are a few things that are hard to swallow. Pairs of magnets can pinch bits of the intestines together, leading to major problems. And it's also very bad to swallow batteries. And there's also an indigestible substance that does hang around in the guts for a long time. And that's hair. People with a compulsion to pull out and eat their own hair can end up with Rapunzel syndrome, a large hairball known as a bezoar trapped in their intestine that needs to be surgically removed. But humans have chewed gum, or at least stretchy tree resin and other indigestible plant matter, or even tar, for thousands of years. And although it's not a good idea to swallow it day after day, the occasional accidental swallow won't leave you with an unwanted intestinal visitor for years on end. Thank you very much, Kat Arney. And if you have any suspicious-looking science that you would like Kat to delve into for you, you can tweet it to at Naked Scientists. You can look us up on Facebook or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, if you're a fan of sharks or surfing, stay tuned, because Georgia has been investigating our relationship with these ancient fish. We are obsessed with having sharks on our screens. There's Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, a film called Sharknado, and obviously Jaws. And this week is actually known as Shark Week in America, with a whole channel devoting their output to shark documentaries. But off the screen, in real life, our relationship with these fish is less than perfect. Shark attacks can stir up tremendous fear, and shark numbers are dwindling due to human activity. 
To find out more about how our relationship could maybe improve, I went to meet Jamie Oliver, senior curator at Sea Life London Aquarium, and also got to see some of these fish face to face. We have several species of shark. We've got this one coming towards us now, which is called a brown shark, uh, also known as a sandbar shark. Um, you can see it's got a real classic shark shape, nice large dorsal fin. Um, just behind it there, we've got a sand tiger shark. Oh, he's a big fellow, isn't he? He, he is. He's, he's one of our biggest sharks at around 10 feet long. Um, really beautiful animal, actually. Actually quite harmless, but they have this sort of fierce look about them because they, they're always baring their teeth. So you can always see their teeth. A lot of sharks hide their teeth. You can't see them when they're swimming around, but the, the sand tigers have always got their teeth on show, and it looks pretty awesome. Awesome indeed, but also very noisy. So we knit behind the scenes where I asked Jamie about why sharks had such a fearsome reputation. There is a certain amount of misunderstanding when it comes to, to sharks. They're really not these dangerous predators, certainly towards humans, that, um, that we think they are. And the media do like to shout about it whenever there's a shark bite or you know, a shark injury because it can be quite intensive in terms of injury. Um, however, for the most part, you know, they need our respect, they need our care, our love, um, because they're really endangered in many parts of the world. Shark attacks may be extremely rare, there's only about 70 a year, but there's still pressure to cull them in popular surfing spots like Australia. But perhaps there's a way to make sure people and sharks can share the oceans. Professor Sean Collin at the University of Western Australia has teamed up with shark mitigation systems and they're using their knowledge of shark biology to design a range of so-called shark-proof wetsuits. I went to visit Sean to have a look at some of these designs, the first of which was a funky blue and teal pattern, and asked him about how they're going about designing these wetsuits. So our approach was to look at the visual system, firstly whether sharks can see in colour and um, unlike most vertebrates, sharks don't see in colour. They're in fact colour blind. So contrast is actually more important to them in finding prey than colour is. So we used that information and actually took a lot of light measurements within the water off the coast of WA and tried to work towards a way of camouflaging the silhouette or the high contrast boundary produced by a human in the water, which generally would be dressed in, say, a black wetsuit, for instance, which is the predominant neoprene colour. And so with reflectance measurements of different materials and different colours and knowledge about the light environment that the animals live in, we were able to model and construct the optimal uh, camouflage pattern that could be put onto a, a wetsuit to camouflage the wearer at different depths, whether it be near the surface, um, halfway down, or even at quite deep depths. So thereby potentially helping, you know, surface versus divers, which would go deeper. So that's the sort of the two of the designs you can see here. These are um, camouflaged wetsuits of slightly uh, bluey-green tinges, but of course this would be seen as shades of grey by the, by the shark, not the colour that we, in fact, uh, see them. If these two wetsuits work on camouflage, there's one on the end there that's got these white stripes across a very dark blue background. This doesn't look very camouflaging to me. Does this work in a different way? It certainly does, yes. Uh, the other design is quite the opposite. It's actually a very high contrast presentation where it's 
black or blue with intermittent stripes of high contrast and low contrast. And yes, this will in fact make the wearer more obvious to a shark and will hopefully elicit the same behaviour but for a different reason. (laughs) The different reason being that most sharks do not like striped patterns, as in they see striped patterns as being a deterrent, an indicator of something venomous. Normally, animals avoid such patterns in nature, and there's lots of examples how that works with sea snakes and various other animals that are also striped. So we um, have this conspicuous pattern that we've looked at, and the banding periodicity, if you like, is governed by, again, our research on the visual acuity of sharks. So we've actually assessed what their spatial resolving power is. So the patterns are actually designed to be obvious at a certain distance to a range of different predatory sharks. While they haven't been able to test these wetsuits out on human subjects, there are some obvious ethical issues there, Sean and his team have been using barrels instead and hopefully it won't be too long before they have some results out. So if you're a surfer, watch this space. And if science can help us to avoid shark attacks, can it also help us to conserve them? Because despite being more ancient than the dinosaurs, many species of shark are in real danger of extinction. Back to Jamie at Sea Life. One of the big factors is overfishing uh, for their shark fins, for their fins. Um, There's a lot of sharks taken out, you know, estimates between 20 and 70 million sharks per year taken uh, from the sea. That's just not sustainable for a species that's very slow to reproduce and that's having a devastating effect. And for many of those sharks, all that's used is the actual fin in shark's fin soup, which is a tasteless broth, really, that um, you know, has, has no real need for the shark fin anyway. There's artificial versions out there now, um, but it continues to be a, a, you know, a very popular dish in certain parts of the world. So what kind of things are being done to try and protect shark? Many things. Um, certain governments are trying to create marine protected areas um, where fishing is banned. Here we're trying to educate all of our guests that come through the door um, and inspire them to go away and campaign and sign petitions and get out there and really shout about these creatures and uh, really care for them. And just don't order the shark fin soup. Absolutely, don't go anywhere near it. And some good news did break last week as a major airline announced a complete ban of shark fin shipment. So hopefully we'll continue to be able to enjoy these fish in our oceans as well as on our screens. That was Jamie Oliver from Sea Life London Aquarium and before him, Sean Collin from the University of Western Australia. Hello, Greya here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly, you can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Georgia Mills. And this week, we're in the kitchen because we're looking at the science behind the perfect dinner party. 
Recipes and techniques are often found by trial and error, passed on from one generation of cooks and chefs to the next. They appear to work, at least most of the time, but how many of us actually know the science behind what's going on? Well, here's a bunch of people who ought to know. Let me introduce you to our dinner guests who are here. Adam Galeski is the head of chocolate and chocolate development at Hotel Chocolat. Wow. What are you going to be knocking up for us? Okay, we're looking at making a couple of ganaches, which are super smooth emulsions, one with orange juice and one with cream. Sounds delicious. Also here, Sue Bailey is a food scientist at uh, London Metropolitan University. Hello, Sue. Hi, hello. Uh, you teamed up with Alex Rushman. Now, Alex is a MasterChef finalist. He's actually got his own award-winning restaurant. It's in Little Wilbraham. It's called The Hole in the Wall, and it's not far from here. But he's popped in this evening. You're going to do a bit of cooking for us. I am, yes. I'm going to do a pan-fried fillet of white fish, in this case cod. I'm going to do it exactly the same way that we do it at the restaurant. I was going to say to you, what we see on the telly with MasterChef, is that a real reflection of what it's really like? Is it really that pressured? It is exactly as you see it. I mean, the time limits are very, very strict. It's one of the most honest uh, reality TV shows I think that's out there. It obviously helped you, though, because obviously you've now gone on, you've started a restaurant, you've won awards. I'm uh, I'm six years out of it now. They get me back occasionally to do some judging and critiquing, uh, which is always good fun. But I've had my restaurant now for five years and we uh, we keep we keep people keep coming back we keep winning awards it's fantastic not just to complain and not just to complain <laughs> thankfully not no thanks alex we'll join alex later you and sue better get cooking because you're doing the main course some white fish as we heard also will Lowe is here your master distiller of the cambridge distillery and you're here to get our senses tingling with some pre-dinner drinks and what does the cambridge what does the distillery do what are you actually trying to do so the Cambridge Distillery is a, a unique distillery. We focus on mainly on production of gins, but the way that we make gin is different to pretty much the way everybody else in the world makes gin. Can you just explain actually what is gin? Because I know I, know I like it, I know I like to drink it, but I've no idea really what it is and what goes into it. I know it's got something to do with juniper. Sure, and that's the start point really. So gin is just a spirit which is predominantly juniper flavoured, but the way that that flavour gets there is very important. So the way that most people make gin is that you start with effectively a large pot, fill that with a neutral alcohol and then add your juniper to that along with other botanical ingredients. Uh, then you boil all that up, collect the vapour that results, condense that back into a liquid, that's gin. But that's not how we do it. At the Cambridge Distillery, we take the observation that not all ingredients like to be boiled at the same temperature. In fact, some don't like to be boiled at all. So we separate all the ingredients out and apply vacuum distillation. This allows us to reduce boiling temperatures. So in the case of things which are more delicate, cucumber rose, for example, instead of increasing the temperature, we simply drop the pressure right down so we can just lift the flavours off. Oh, well, so instead of actually boiling up this giant stew and just keeping the vapour and chucking the stew residue away, you're actually saying we can boil things off at a much lower temperature and therefore we may not get this deleterious destructive effect on some of these more delicate ingredients and you can get them into the final product rather than just boiling them away. That's exactly the principle so instead of having one big pot we've got lots and lots of little individual chambers we control the boiling point because of the pressure, different uh, temperature in each case, so much lower temperatures for the much more delicate flavours. Tell us about how you actually blend a gin or you know, what is the anatomy of a good gin if you like So I like to think of gins as having sort of base notes, heart notes and top notes this is something that really uh, it brushes shoulders with the perfume industry uh, in many ways. So um, with base notes, for example, the key base note here will, will always be juniper. I've got some here for you to try, actually. Uh, this is a juniper distillate. Uh, so if you taste that, you'll notice its uh, base notes typically tend to be characterised by being relatively bold flavours, but relatively simple flavours. Let's give this a try. So this is just a clear colourless liquid. 
Mm. It, it just actually tastes like cheap gin, if I'm honest. It's just, it's just literally, it's got that flavour of gin, but it just tastes like vodka and some junipery flavour. Yeah, so, I mean, that is gin without its clothes on. It's, that's a naked gin for a Perfect. naked scientist. Yeah. So, so where the character comes in, that's where we add in the heart notes. So um, at this point, it's useful to understand a bit about how flavour actually works. Uh, flavour being a combination of your sense of taste, which is what happens in your mouth, where you have uh, sweet, sour, bitter, acidity and umami. And then you've got uh, smell, so olfaction. There are two routes to that, one through your nose, so smelling, as most people would call it, but orthonasal olfaction, as we call it, and then backwards through the, through the back of your throat, which is retronasal olfaction. And these interact very differently. So a way of demonstrating this, I've got a, a spirit here, which I'll put into a pipette, and ask you, if you can, to put it into your mouth, but with your nose held. Do you want right. to hold your microphone? You hold, you hold my microphone, so I'm going to hold this pipette, I'm going to hold my nose and okay. squirt this in my mouth. And go. then... There you are. Now try and swallow with your nose still held. Okay, done that. Taste almost nothing. And then when you yep. release, can't your taste anything. Let my nose off. Breathe in and out. Ooh, oh, it's a beautiful lemony flavour. Huge. Do you know? I used to do the same thing with Brussels sprouts when I was at school because I hated them, and yes. I found if I held my nose, I didn't have to taste them. And that's the same principle. Exactly the same. So by cutting off that access to retronasal olfaction, you can really dampen flavour right down, or or the opposite, as we just saw in there. How does this apply to gin, though? We use a heart note as something that you can identify both ortho and retronasally. So it's the character that you'll pick up when you nose the gin, but it's also a really persistent flavour after you've swallowed. Yes, yeah, so I can still taste that lemony essence now. Right. So. So the opposite of that in many ways is a top note, which I've illustrated here by using an atomizer. So I've used this, uh, it's like a perfume bottle, a bit of perfume you can spray directly into your mouth. So this is a big square bottle, it's got a little squirty thing on the top like perfume. I'm going to spray this just on my tongue, yeah? Straight into your mouth. Ooh. Okay, that's a rosy flavour. It's like rose, right? But it was—it wasn't like the lemon one, which I could still taste from minutes ago. That was there in a flash. It was like someone detonated a sudden explosion in my mouth, and it was over in a flash. It's gone. And that's exactly what we use a top note for. So by using the atomizer, we're massively increasing the surface area. There gives you a really intense, strong hit, but then it disappears. It's almost ethereal, uh, a really sort of elusive element of the flavour that we balance. So what we do is we take all these elements together, wrap those up into one single flavour, as it were, and then that's. How we make a gin but of course because not all people are the same we also offer a gin tailoring service where we can do this and fit a particular gin to each individual person's particular palate now you've educated me about how you do all this does this mean will that you could make gins from ingredients that would i suppose be regarded as unusual it means exactly that certainly the weirdest one i think would be our anti-gin anti-gin like antifreeze Anti-gin like ants, as in creepy crawlies, made from actual ants, yeah. How did you do that? Well, uh, long story short, this was a collaborative project between us and the Nordic Food Lab. They uh, made the observation that some ants from some places have very specific flavours. We actually use a red wood ant, which has this sort of, it's citrusy. If it were just a citrus flavour, we would use lemons. They don't run away, they don't try and bite you, but they have a, a completely unique flavour. And all gins have a citrus flavour in them somewhere as well. So, How do you get the flavour out of an ant? Do you go and dig up an ant's nest and just get millions of ants and just do what you would do if they were juniper berries? Well, actually, what we do is um, we work with a chap called Miles Irving, who's a forager in South Kent, and he very cleverly waits for these ants to be on the move. So they go very deep underground to avoid the frost during winter, and then in the spring they start to swarm. 
Now, it's very important to us that we use happy ants, because if you get upset ants, then they express their discomfort by spraying formic acid. Now, that's the bit that we actually want. So we use these happy ants. Uh, Miles will put down a, a big sheet that they crawl over on their, uh, on their swarming journey and pick that up and uh, sort of gently shake them directly into a high-strength ethanol, which conserves the formic acid and dispatches them in as humane a way as possible. That ethanol then comes back up to us in Cambridge, where we distill it and have a go. Of course. So what I'd like to show you first of all is the ant distillate. So this is what ants taste like when distilled. So this is pure ant distillate. Here we go. Uh, mm. Mm. It's not at all unpleasant. And it's, it's quite a subtle flavour, but it, it tastes ginny without actually... Any gin there? Yeah. I mean, that, this is how we knew immediately on first tasting that this was a project that was going to be successful. Yeah. Right, so what, you blend that in with your other notes now to get that, that very nice rustic flavoured gin? That's right, and this is the result. So this is, it looks like a clear colourless liquid. Yep. OK, here we go, give it a try. Well, it's extremely pleasant, and it's much more complex and much more interesting than the rather boring base that we tried earlier which yeah. is a good thing because yeah, if it absolutely. wasn't obviously there'd be a problem but no that's delicious will though master distiller of the cambridge distillery thank you very much thanks for having me now it's not just the food and drink that makes your dinner party a blast your mind decides if something is tasty or not for a whole host of different reasons not all of them are related to flavor Professor Charles Spence is head of the Cross-Modal Research Lab in Oxford and he gave me some tips into how psychology can improve your dining experience. Intuitively, I guess we all sort of think, well, I like the taste of this or the taste of that. And by using that language, you can imagine that what we're reflecting on or enjoying is derived solely from what's going on in our mouth, namely from the taste buds on the tongue. And yet what the sort of psychology and neuroscience shows is that what's going on in the taste buds and in the mouth is only a very small part of what we all kind of experience as the taste and flavour of foods and drinks. So taste buds themselves give us just sweet, sour, salty, bitter, perhaps umami and a few other basic tastes. But all the interesting stuff in food, the citrus, the meaty, the floral, the herbal, the burnt, uh, all those notes are all coming from our nose instead through to uh, the sound of the crunch of the potato chip or any other dry or wet food product that makes a crunch, a crackle, a kind of carbonated, creamy, crispy, squeaky, all of these attributes that we, we love in foods. Again, we think we're sort of feeling them in our mouth or between our teeth. Uh, and yet it, it turns out that what we hear, the sound of the crunch or the, or the fizz of the bubbles in your drink, plays a much more important role, again, than we realise. But, but the neuroscience and the psychology is helping to unpick just how important each sense is. Say I'm having a dinner party. Do you have any top tips on ways I could use psychology to make sure everyone has a nice time? Um, uh, yes, indeed. I would say you know, one of the simplest things to do is to increase the weight of the cutlery uh, that your guests hold. Because that does, in a number of studies now, lead to food being rated better than it otherwise might be with light cutlery. Instead, I'd think about playing classical music in the background, because generally speaking, that tends to be associated with higher quality and classy offerings. And you find that, that people in the wine shop will generally um, ascribe a higher value to uh, food and drink if there's classical music rather than top 40 uh, playing uh, in the background. So heavy cutlery and classical music make for the perfect dinner party and Charles will be back later with some more super psychology tips. Alex Rushmer from the Hole in the Wall in Little Wilbraham is with us. 
MasterChef finalist. Do you have heavy cutlery and classical music playing at the restaurant? Uh, we tend to favour jazz, actually, but I'm, I wonder if that has a similar sort of effect. I thought you were going to say we do now, but uh, you're doing the main course for us, Alex. What have you got in mind? OK, so I've got some lovely fillets of, uh, of white fish here. We use cod. You could do the same thing with hake or turbot or halibut if your budget allows. Uh, but the process is exactly the same. Um, the, the cod comes into us. We choose the best possible fish. That's... That's that's crucial to it, you know. So before we do anything with it, it goes. It, we salt it. That's the first thing we do. We liberally season it with just regular plain table salt. We then leave it in the fridge uh, uncovered for about three quarters of an hour to an hour, depending on the size of the fish. After that, we rinse it. We give it uh, about two three minutes in just in fresh cold water. Then it goes back into the fridge on blue cloth. We dry it as, as closely as we can. We really get both sides of it very, very dry. We leave it uncovered in the fridge for about four or five hours. That may sound counterintuitive to some people, why you would want to dry fish, because one of the things I've had in restaurants in the past, not yours, because I've not dined in your restaurant, but the fish is you know, dry and you think, oh, I don't like that. Why are you drying it? So we're drying it to caramelise the outside. We're not drying the inside of the fish. It's a very delicate cure that we put on the outside. A, a symptom of overcooking fish is a fish that feels dry in the mouth. That's what we're trying to avoid. Right, so you dry the surface, then what do you do? Is that straight in the pan, or is there another step? Before we put it in a pan, is uh, we blowtorch it. Blowtorch it? We use a, a blowtorch <laughs> to further dry out the skin and begin the caramelisation process. Is that that? This is, this is, we've got one right here. The, the same thing you see in your garage, actually. OK, well, don't burn my microphone or my work, worktop. Here we go. Try not to. So Alex, is, literally, he is blowtorching the surface of the fish. So we've got the fish sitting in an oven tray, and each piece is... 10 to 15 seconds on each piece, I'd say? Yeah, about that, just enough to when you see the colour starting to appear on the... Uh, it's just the turning, isn't it? Fish. Little tiny black spots here and there on it, like dark spots, and it's just sort of crisping up, and you're done. Right. And that's it, it's uh, done. Now what? It's as easy as that. We've got a pan on the, on the heat here, very, very high heat usually for, for fish cookery. We've got a little film of oil in there. The fish goes straight into the pan. And you're actually holding the fish down, you're actually pressing that down into it's, the oil. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm holding it down very, very gently. Uh, what you don't want to do with meat or fish cookery is apply a lot of pressure to it. Something that I see a lot, especially with new chefs in the kitchen or people that cook in their own homes, is they play with the food when it's in the pan or they mess around with it. Something that you actually want to do is just leave it alone, let it cook, let it do its thing. Right, I'm going to leave you alone and let you do your thing, do what you do best. I'm going to come over here and have a chat to Sue, because, Sue, can you tell us what Alex is up to? What's actually going on chemically in this frying pan? Well, what's going on chemically is that the protein of the fish is beginning to denature. And what's happened is that you really don't want your fish to cook at too high a temperature, typically about 40 degrees centigrade. He cooked it with a blowtorch. That goes up to over 1,000 degrees centigrade. But it's just enough to brown it, give the Maillard browning, the browning reaction which you saw. And now what he's doing is just cooking the fish very gently. Normally what happens, um, you have to cook up to about 110 degrees centigrade in order to get a Maillard reaction. If you did that to the fish, you'd get not very juicy, not such nice fish as he's going to produce. You've mentioned a number of words there. Denature was one of them, denaturing the proteins. First explain what that is and then tell us what this Maillard reaction that you've mentioned a couple of times is. Well, denaturing is what happens when you have the protein, which is typically in layers. It, what happens is that the protein, as you heat it, denature it, the protein parts of 
the food begin to unfold. It's what's known as its tertiary layer. So that begins to unfold and then it begins to firm up. the protein changes shape. The protein changes that's shape. That's why we get the sort of colour change and the textural change. That's why you get colour change and so on. Exactly what about so. the Maillard reaction, the browning? The Maillard reaction is where you have got a reaction between the sugars and the amino acids from the protein. And that's what gives you a lovely caramelly, smoky flavour and also the visual effect that ah, you're Ah, so that's for. the good taste. That's the good taste, yes. So indeed. that's why, why Alex did the blowtorch was to get lots of that Maillard reaction, which needs a high temperature. But now he's cooking at the slightly lower temperature to avoid destroying the quality of the meat inside. So we've got the best of the both worlds, the good, the good taste plus the good texture. Absolutely so. That's exactly right. How are you getting on, Alex? Yeah, I think we're, uh, we're looking good. There's some nice colour that's starting to appear on the, on the side of the fish that's in contact with the pan. I think another 30 seconds or so on that side, and then we'll flip it over, cook it from the other side, and we'll introduce some butter to the pan as well. It's going to put butter in. Is that a good idea, Sue? Oh, yes, for flavour. Yes, absolutely. Um, what it's going to do is a bit more caramelisation on the fish, and it's just when you serve it, it's going to be nice and foamy, slightly golden brown, nutty flavour, and because he was cooking it before in a very neutrally flavoured oil to have the temperature right, he's now just making sure that it's finished nicely and tastes perfect. OK, butter's gone. You, that's, a, that's quite a big knob of butter. This is the other thing that you, that, that you don't see in, in home kitchens an awful lot, is the amount of butter that we use uh, in, a, in a restaurant kitchen. And I'm liking this. You've got that lovely technique of flicking the, the melted butter over the top of the fish as it goes. Is that so you don't have to fiddle with it and turn it over, like you were saying? That's exactly it. So I've got the pan leaning towards me uh, ever so slightly, probably at an angle of about 30, 30, 40 degrees. The fish is at the far side of the pan, and then there's a nice pool of butter sitting just in front of me here, which I can then spoon straight over the fish. And you see it, you can, you can smell it, and you can smell the sort of slightly biscuity nature of the butter. It, it does smell biscuity, and it's also browning off the top of the fish as well. It's browning off the top of the fish. The butter is foaming as well. That's how we know that the temperature is, is right. What you don't want to do is take the butter too far and actually burn it. Um, you end up with a sort of slightly bitter flavour. Right, as they say on MasterChef, you've got 30 seconds to plate that up, Alex. We'll just ask Sue, why was the butter all foamy like that? That's partially because of the salts and a little bit of the liquid in the butter. Sorry, the water. It's, so it's the water sort of boiling there. away and it's driving steam inside away, the butter. Driving some steam away, making sure that it's, it's perfectly cooked. Now, talking of perfectly cooked, what can you say about the sort of food safety aspects? How do we know that that piece of fish, if it's only, say, 40 degrees in the middle, how do we know that's safe to eat? Well, I think this is where Alex is going to use a tried-and-trusted thermometer, which... Perhaps... His thumb. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I can just see him wiping it off now. Because the important thing is, from a food safety point of view, you need to have it at 40 degrees centigrade. Or above or above to make sure that it's safe to eat. And so I have just saw him prodding it now. I don't know what's happening. Is it, what's the verdict? Good the verdict go. is it is cooked. Georgia, it looks good. You're going to come and try this? I absolutely want to have some. I'm just going to... I'm, I can't wait. Can I, can I help myself to one of these forks, Alex? Because I'm always so jealous of the fancy guys on telly when they do this. So I'm going to have a little yeah. bit. Here we go. Oh, that's melting your mouth. Oh, here we go. I guess that's what you get paid for, Alex. Is that what you're going for? Sort of, it falls apart in your mouth. It doesn't need much effort to make that fish fall to pieces on your tongue. 
that's it with cod you've got a fish with fairly fairly large flakes which you do want to fall apart you don't want them to be stuck together and i think that's part of the process of the denaturization of the of the proteins yeah absolutely what's happening there is that the collagen um in fish melts at a slightly lower temperature than it does typically in meat so typically goes at 41 degrees centigrade and the fish is cooked at 40 degrees centigrade so as you say it should just flake apart beautifully but not be overcooked or dry Thank you very much, Sue Bailey, and also Alex Rushman. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Georgia. Enjoy your fish. Just have a taste of the fish palm. (laughs) Oh, that is fantastic. Anyway, while we get ready for dessert, I think we have some more top tips from Professor Charles Spence on why size can be important when it comes to feeling full. Uh, If you're aiming to try and be satisfied with a little bit less, then uh, think about serving for a smaller plate because it will trick your brain into looking like there's more food there than one on, than one of those big American-style white plates where the food looks tiny um, as a result. Um, and I've recently been very interested in this kind of growing um, trend towards bowl food. You kind of think, what's going on there? And that's kind of tied up with, you know, sort of healthy eating. And you think, well, it's partly about if the food is in a bowl, then you're more likely to pick it off the table, hold it in your hands, then feel the weight of the bowl, maybe feel its texture. That can enhance the experience. You're more likely to kind of sniff the aromas coming off the food if you're holding that bowl to your face. And again, those food aromas are a key part of the experience and can help you to feel fuller uh, on less. Um, through, I think, also with, with a sort of a bowl without a, um, a rim, say, then the food's going to fill almost to the very edge of the bowl and hence that will again trick your brain into looking like there's more uh, food and the final kind of advantage of the bowl food at least for hot food is uh comes from the sort of social psychology research showing that if you hold something warm in your hand like a warm bowl of food or a cup of tea or coffee then the world kind of looks generally like a better place and oh. everyone else around you looks warmer too so this, this kind of transfer of, of attributes from what you hold in your hand to uh, to elsewhere That was Professor Charles Spence from the University of Oxford. And now it's time for arguably the best course of the day. It's dessert. And we've got Adam Galeski here with us, who's head of chocolate development at Hotel Chocolat. So, Adam, what have you got for us? Okay, Georgia, so we've got a couple of things on the go at the same time. We've got some uh, chocolate melting. Uh, I've got some orange juice, which is actually Sicilian blood orange warming up. And I've got some cream warming up. And we're trying to get all of these to the same temperature, about 45 degrees centigrade. So as we know, you know, chocolate is uh, solid at room temperature. And then as we warm it up to 45 degrees, it goes lovely, lovely and liquid. And what we're going to do is look at how we can combine these ingredients together to make some interesting desserts and maybe even chocolates. So what's the name of the dessert we're making? Uh, what we're going to do is make something called a ganache. And a ganache is when you add chocolate and some kind of liquid. So normally that's cream. But you can do some interesting stuff. And we're going to try our introduce today, but you, we could easily be doing this with rum, tea, and in fact any kind of liquid you can think of, we could have a go at making this. I suppose the science of this is we're making an emulsion. An emulsion is a, a mixture of two miscible li- liquids. So in this case, we've got uh, cocoa butter, which is a, a fat, and, and at 45 degrees it's going to become a liquid. And then we're also adding, there's water in the orange juice and in the cream. And we're going to be combining both of those, trying to mix it really thoroughly to break the cocoa butter down into tiny little pieces and surround that with a sea of water. Adding the cream and the fruit juice will also give it some extra flavours. So when you say a mixable, you mean they can't mix together? They normally know they can't mix together. So if you drop one on top of the other, they would separate. But like oil and water or something like that? Exactly. And what we're doing with the ganache is very similar to what you do if ever you had a go at making a mayonnaise or even paint. The, the way it works is the cocoa butter will get broken down into such small pieces that it's then held by this uh, sea of water. 
Great. So we've got some bowls here. So, right, yeah, we've got two bowls. So we've got the cream and we've got the... You're going to have a go at the cream and I'm going to have a go at the fruit juice, OK? We're going to have a ganache off. <laughs> so I'm just going to now pour some of the chocolate, the melted chocolate, into the cream. And then I'm going to put some of the melted chocolate into my fruit juice. Chocolate and juice, it just doesn't seem doesn't right at the like moment. It's going to work, but it is definitely going to work. And I'm going to hand you a spoon. <laughs> you need to get stirring. Right. Get the spoon right in the bottom and get that moving. Oh gosh, I'm spilling ganache everywhere. <laughs> oh, it's going everywhere. So you can see what's happening now is to start with, it goes really lumpy. What's happening there is the water-loving... Oh, it's working really well now. The water-loving cocoa powder in the chocolate is sucking up all the water. And then the more you mix it, the smoother it gets. And what you're looking for is something that's really nice and shiny and glossy, which actually yours is... Oh, no, yours is looking better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) But on the other hand, I have splashed it all over you, and I'm very sorry about that. (laughs) I'll be having that later. Okay, so actually, now we can stop now. You've got a beautifully soft and glossy... Ganache, actually, that looks really professional. If you're looking for another job, we'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, would you like to try some of it? I would love to. I was just I, I, waiting for you okay, to say. So I recommend, with your one, I recommend maybe try it with a strawberry. Oh, OK. going to dip the strawberry. Oh, it's nice and warm. And while, and you're, while, you're eating, while you're eating that. Now, uh, you could use this as it is. So this, this is still really nice and warm. It's like 45 degrees. And this is perfect for dipping fruit and stuff like that into and just eating as it is, or even kind of like a cracker or something like that, which I've also got. But if you left this uh, and you left it over night to set up properly the cocoa butter then starts to crystallize so it starts to go solid again and that firms the whole mix up and that's what we'd use for the center of a a filled chocolate so a nice soft chocolate so if you then if you then take took a scoop of that and rolled it dusted it in cocoa powder or or dip that in chocolate you'd have a nice filled chocolate okay so so uh as they are now they're kind of just a bit liquid and and soft but they become oh you've got some here you made earlier blue blue peter style yeah blue peter style here's someone made earlier so the one i'd like you to try this is the orange this is the orange ganache so this is like this is the one that i made that didn't come out as well as yours but it does taste very good (laughs) so this is on a nice cracker so tell me what you think oh can we all all try some Mm. That's yeah, fantastic. Because I'm just looking Alex and Sue look like they're going to kill someone if mm. they don't get a chance to try it. No, you're going to struggle with your, with your microphone in hand. There's some crackers and there's some chocolate. Well, I stand corrected. The orange juice and chocolate work lovely together. And I imagine, does this mean it's a bit more healthy? Sorry, you're wiping off all the chocolate I sprayed on you earlier. Um, does this mean it's like a bit more healthy than the cream one, the traditional ganache? Yeah, so if you think about uh, chocolate, it's kind of like a half of the chocolate is cocoa butter and the, other half, and the other half of it's a mixture of milk powder and sugar. So obviously adding water into that kind of like dilutes the energy parts of the ingredients. So if you were using a fruit juice, that then reduces the amount of fat in the chocolate. But then if you were making this with, say, a tea, so maybe something really interesting like a matcha tea or a, an Earl Grey tea, you're just adding really water and flavour. That would do an even better job. Uh, in terms of reducing the kind of like the calorie count in that filled chocolate. I can't wait to experiment with all the different liquids. And so just to summarise, it's basically as simple as melting the chocolate to 40 degrees, mixing it in with the liquid of choice, and then, well, leaving it to set in the fridge or just eating it all immediately with strawberries, as I intend to do with these ones. Yeah, pretty much. So, so the important thing is melt your chocolate to... I'd melt it to just over 45 degrees. Make sure you combine all your ingredients at the same temperature. Imagine if you add cold cream to warm chocolate. It just sets the chocolate and it makes your ganache go really lumpy. And then get on and mix those as fast as you can and then just sit back and enjoy it. The advantage of this as a kind of dip at a dinner table is that it takes a lot longer for it to set.
so you can enjoy it for longer. And this is the friend of the chocolatier. You can use this to make fillings for these chocolates, like those mojito chocolates we were eating naughtily before the show. Oh, we use all sorts of things in this type of recipe. So, so we add all sorts of alcohol. So I'd have a go with the gin. That, that, I think that would work really well. Um, we use all sorts of vodkas. But then equally, we have uh, recipes with uh, carrots, like carrot cake type <laughs> recipes. Um, we've got some really interesting cocktails, like mojitos. And then in some of our recipes, we'd use like real champagne and make things like champagne truffles. So it, you can, it's really versatile. Can I but ask you a question, though? Yeah. Uh, how, how do you get the alcohol to stay inside the chocolate without sort of eating its way out? If you're making a ganache, you don't really have a problem with that. What you do is you make your ganache up to this stage, and then you add your alcohol. Don't try and heat everything up with your with your alcohol. Make your ganache first and add your alcohol into it so it goes in last. It lasts, it lasts really well. But do keep your ganaches, if you are going to have a go at making these, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you are going to have a go at making them, keep your ganache in the fridge because this is a really simple recipe and it needs to be kept refrigerated, otherwise it will eventually go off and it, it lasts for a few days. What do you think, Will? It looks and sounds and tastes delicious. I'm a fan. Oh, you, you were just t- tucking in, Sue? Oh, yes, I've just tried a little bit and it's perfect. We'll be going back for more. Alex, is this something you could serve up in the restaurant? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. We, we make all our own petit fours and chocolate truffles to go out with coffees at the end of a meal, and I think this is a, a great addition to it. Lovely. What a fantastic finish to our dinner party. Thank you so much, Adam, and thank you to all our other guests. That's Will Lowe, Sue Bailey and Alex Rushmer. And now it's time for our question of the week, because Greer Jackson has been untangling this question from Android Neox. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from Alpha to Omega. I've heard the octopus are colourblind, so how can they so reliably match their background colours when they camouflage themselves? Okay, then let's take the plunge and talk to Felicity Bedford from the University of Cambridge, who hopefully will be able to help us shed some light on the question. So, your listeners absolutely correct. They are colourblind. So, they only see in black and white and the shades of grey in the middle. And all of the colours appear within that spectrum to an octopus. So, much simpler world in terms of colour. So how on earth do they then go about camouflaging with their environment if they're colourblind? Other than the fact that they can't see colour, they have incredibly good vision. So they can get a lot of accuracy about their environment, about the texture of their environment, about the brightness of their environment. And these are all really important things for when you're camouflaging, to break up your outline, break up the pattern of your body. Um, And generally, the way that predators pick out their prey is through movement, through brightness and through colour. So by getting the movement and the brightness right, they're taking away a few of the things that predators can use to spot them. And then it's only colour left. And we think that this is probably to do with the way that there's a limited set of colours available. And octopuses use something called chromatophores in their skins. So they've got a range of pigments to work with. Um, And these are pushed towards the surface of the skin to change the colour. So lots of different sacks of colour that are pushed and manipulated. And quite frankly, if they get it wrong, they get eaten. So there's a sort of evolutionary pressure there. And presumably, I'm thinking octopuses are underwater. And if you've ever been diving, actually, it's not that colourful down there in the first place. So it's not actually that useful to see in colour anyway. Now, you lose a lot of different light frequencies underwater, um, particularly the, the reds and stuff that get filtered out very early on. Um, and the, the chromatophores that they're using are in the blacks, the browns, the oranges, yellows, those kind of colours. Um, so they do tend to go into those ranges. And then there are some other cells that they can use that, which bring up luminescence and blues and greens, um, which actually reflect light rather than using these pigments instead. So they've got a lot of things that they can use to change their colour but they're not necessarily aware of the colour that they are. 
There you have it, Android. Octopuses can see texture and brightness, giving them quite the upper hand in the art of camouflage. No invisibility charms required. Next time, we head back to the age of the Flintstones to turn over a few more rocks. Hey, scientists. This is Kat from Kansas City, Missouri. I was reading a Gary Larson comic the other day and noticed all the cavemen had silly names. And it got me wondering, did cavemen even have names? When did human beings start naming themselves? Gary Larson, one of my favourite cartoonists of all time there. So if anyone wants to venture a guess about this one, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientist, or please do join in the debate on our forum. You can find it at nakedscientist.com slash forum. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to our lovely dinner party guests for their contributions. We're off to enjoy the spoils of the party now. Thank you very much to Fanny Ewan, Lushka Bibich and also Claire Armstrong for production. We'll be back next week with a Q&A show, so send in your science questions. You can use email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also come in via Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.